Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a successful business, I've met directly or indirectly many successful people from entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes someone successful? Do we even know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create it for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Maria Kempinska, MBE, is CEO and founder of Jonglers, the comedy club empire that helped launch the careers of Fry and Laurie, Graham Norton and Frank Skinner, to name but a few. It was 35 years ago Maria left her job as an English and drama teacher to follow her entrepreneurial dream by setting up this chain of comedy clubs, which today has 12 venues across the UK, as well as hotel residences, touring stand-up shows and global aspirations. Her love for comedy, coupled with her teaching and psychotherapy experience, has also led her to create a school of comedy for homeless people. So, not surprisingly, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce today's guest, Maria Kempinska. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Gosh, it's a, the pleasure is all ours. We only have 30 minutes, and I, could, I know from, our, from speaking to you before, we could probably spend a day having a chat, but unfortunately we are limited in time. So I'm going to dive straight in and ask you a question, if I may. A lot of people um, won't know much about you and what you've achieved. So let's start by, by finding out about Maria Kempinska, the lady, the very lovely lady, if you Thank don't mind you. me saying. That's very sweet of you. Well, it's very kind. Um, I've had an interesting background. Funnily enough, I never used to talk about my background until I did a talk for my children's school after they'd left and it was uh, prize giving day. And I thought, I'll just tell them about my funny experiences. And a lot of them were around, you know, people like Prince Philip and so on. And somebody tweeted at the end and said, well, that's OK. She was just showing off about the people she knew. And I thought, OK, you know, that was a, a pointer for me to say where I started from, because my parents were Polish political refugees. They were both prisoners of war in Russia, both suffered losses, both, you know, sort of both my father was shot and they both fought at Monte Cassino. So I was actually born into a family that six of us lived in one room in Paddington. Paddington. Great. It's a great place now. It wasn't so great then. Um, we then moved on to a council estate outside Watford called South Oxy. And people from South Oxy, I still know them. And uh, so I grew up in a family that was actually very poor, as they say, but they had great ambition. You know, my father and my mother, was she was a mathematician. My father wanted to be a barrister, but didn't have the language over here. And um, they just instilled the, the need for education. But I loved books. Right, so how did I get to going from there to jonglers? I was at a, a convent grammar school and we used to do um, funding for charities. And one of the events I used to put on at the age of 14 was just shows. And uh, I found that I was quite good at it. But you, you don't know that when your parents want you to go into maths or into teaching or into being a doctor or a nurse. Well, we were never given that grade. You never were a doctor in an all-girls school. You were meant to aim for being a secretary or a nurse or get married. Uh, I was a little bit rebellious, I think, as you can tell. And as I grew up, I said to my father I wanted to go into psychiatry. And I volunteered in a very big mental asylum outside Watford, which doesn't exist now, but that was a fascinating experience. 
And he said, definitely not, you're not doing that. OK, well, I want to go into the theatre. Definitely not, you're not doing that. I'm not signing any of those forms, you're not doing any of that. So I trained to teach. <laughs> I thought I'd follow the rules. And uh, I trained to teach English and drama, and he was quite happy with that. And then I thought, I don't like this. I don't like schools. I don't like the system you have to follow. Um, because I wanted to do much more freely available drama improvisation around emotional problems and just how to socialise with young people. So I sort of dotted around in my 20s doing this job and that job and worked for advertising companies and selling and so on until I went to Edinburgh and I was promoting a director and he had written a one-man play, a poem, well, a one-man poem that extended over an hour and uh, I managed to do the marketing for him very successfully. And as I was there, they were showing people five minutes of their work. And I thought, this is great. We should do this in London. Found a venue I used to go roller skating in and polloined some people. And I sort of say, come on, come on, let's do this. So there were three of us and two dropped out. And then I decided, do I do this or do I not? And at the time, I wanted to go into musical theatre. I had a music agent, a singing agent. Believe me, I wasn't great. But he phoned me and said, I've got you a job. And I thought, blimey, all these years later, I'm desperate to do this. I've been training myself. And I had to make a decision on the spot. Do I go into the theatre, which was my dream, or do I start my own business, which I didn't know was going to be a proper business? And I thought, no, look, come on, Maria, you're in your 20s. Your voice isn't that great. You're not really going to make it. So I said, I'm sorry, I've just started a business. And that's how Jonglers was born. And I started it in the February. I begged, stole and borrowed people to come in and, you know, sort of help me with the sound and everything like that. But the first night we had 400 people in there, in a 300-seater venue, so it was a bit packed. And then it just sort of grew, grew. And what I was good at is finding talent. So I used to go to Covent Garden and look for street performers. and But very quickly I had people like... Um, Laurie and Fry came, but they came as part of a TV show. But um, Eddie Izzard, um, Harry Enfield, Rory Bremner, all the early, early performers. So the first two years were full of political cabaret artists. And it was, how do I plan the show to make sure that if you have somebody that doesn't work, how do I make sure that the venue works? How do I make sure that people are comfortable? What's the premise that I start from? And I thought, well, if I can make one woman on her own comfortable, that means this the feeling of the uh, for the audience is going to be really good. So I had somebody, as soon as they came into the venue, a meter and greeter, uh, a woman could sit on her own and she would be introduced to everybody. Um, the atmosphere had to be quite uh, easygoing because there were some very radical performers, including Jerry Shadowitz. And I must say, I'm a bit of a fan of Jerry's. Um, and I still think he's a man to be reckoned with because he actually told everybody all those years ago that Jimmy Savile was a paedophile and that's why he never made it on television. So I heard a lot of radical comedians, you know, Arthur Smith and John Hegley. There were lots and lots of great, wonderful, outspoken comedians. Today, comedy isn't quite the same. It's not quite as politically radical. And um, the first two or three weeks were quite successful and then naturally the numbers slumped because you've got to do your marketing. And it was up and down, up and down until the owners of the pub got in touch with us and started saying, well, something's going on here. 
you know, let's see what's happening. And eventually we created an alliance and grew from there. Wow, that is quite a story. Um, and you've covered so much amazing stuff already. I'm going to touch on a couple of things, if I may. Um, you know, that you, you refer to the word as radical, but a lot of us feel that comedy is a very good, it's a safe environment in which to have a laugh at ourselves, the world today, particularly when with all that political correctness, we can't say or do anything outside the confines of, for example, a comedy club. Do you think that attitudes have changed over the years and has comedy helped us to change in any way? Interestingly enough, um, I've just received my PhD, so I'm a doctor in psychoanalysis. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. It was hard work. But my theme was the um, process of stand-up comedy and how it can change you as an individual. So I wrote this at the back, you know, with the back of knowing comedy and highlighted various comedians as being the ones that really pinpointed and changed world perception. But I called them supra comedians and there aren't many of them. But did comedy change and does it? Number one, has it changed over the years? Absolutely. It's changed over the years. It's become less um, political. People are trying to put a stranglehold on what's being said. And I think it's a tragedy. And we are a country for free speech. And I think comedy clubs must have free speech. Uh, Although having said that, you know, sort of when Princess Diana died, I really wanted everybody to be, you know, have a period of time where you're, um, where that period of time is quite sacred around somebody's death. I don't think it's appropriate for everybody just to take a pop at somebody because the event is quite a large event. So, you know, have a bit of time before you start saying something funny. But when um, 9-11 happened, for example, we couldn't stop American comedians talking about it. So we've had, we were sort of policing the comedians. So right from the beginning, it was non-homophobic and non-sexist. Having said that, again, women started becoming much more sexualized in their approach to the audience. So we had to rein them in as well. So it's, it's quite a big, uh, quite a tenuous balance uh, without offending a, the performer, without impacting too much and offending the audience. It depends how you offend the audience to how you monitor the people on stage. But Americans in the USA are allowed to say whatever they like on stage. Here, if they were homophobic, we would ask them either to cut out their material that was homophobic. We didn't book them if they were extreme or, um, you know, sort of we were just sensitive to that. And if they didn't want to cut out their material, then we would just wouldn't allow them to go on. Mm. It seems to me that most of the critics are the people who don't go to these places anyway, which is kind of unusual. I also want to touch on something you said earlier, and we just use the word dream. So you were faced with this kind of conundrum. Do I Mm. follow my heart or do I follow my head? Paraphrasing. Um, What's interesting about what you said, because many people that I meet and we speak to on this podcast, Maria, um, tend to have a view that, you know, you should always follow your dream, your heart, no matter what. But you, you kind of, you did what you wanted to do, but in a measured way. Would that be a fair well, way to Well, I have no it? choice. So to some extent, you know, sort of because as you grow up when you're a teenager, you are guided by your parents. We were. We didn't have the social influence young people have today. And you're guided by your school and your parents and the social norms, you know, for women at that time. Mm. There wasn't so much opportunity. I couldn't get a bank account as easily as when I got married, my husband got a bank account. I couldn't get a mortgage as easily as he did. Um, So you have constraints and you know that 
you know, somewhere on a subconscious level, you know that you're going to have to fight against a world that actually isn't ready for you. To some, not that I'm, a, you know, sort of I'm not that bullish for feminism. I'm, you know, you have to live and speak and do what you're going to do instead of talking about it. That's what I think. Show them by what you can achieve. Um, so I think there was sort of no guide to that. I actually comedy ended up being the best thing for me anyway, because when at the end of a week, which is quite hard in business, especially we were, there was no template for comedy clubs. We had to design the template. We had I sort of introduced a way of booking the comedians that gave new comedians an opportunity that engaged the audience. So everything was quite new. And also, you know, I didn't have any backup. My parents lived in a council flat. And my now ex-husband, his parents were council flat people, council house people. So, you know, we didn't have any money, no backup, no no bank to turn to. Um, so you're sort of living from hand to mouth to make this business work. But what I did know on a Friday night, because it started on a Friday, was that it was funny and you could engage in the humour. Now on a more esoteric and an intellectual level, I then realised as time went on, my goodness, this is brilliant. People come away from here, they're fully engaged and they can laugh at things. And if you can laugh not only at the outside world, it can actually just divest you of a lot of political inhibitions or beliefs or, you know, anything. It just is a great door opener. What I did find, however, Men were a little bit reticent to listen to women. It's still a problem now. But generally, men were more ready to engage in humour than women were, apart from me. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I went into a meeting and people know, knew that I was in jonglers, it was a great door opener because all the men... I've sat at tables at dinners where men have all told me jokes and asked me who's the funniest. You know, life couldn't be better than that, really. Yeah. When, you know, I've had people sort of telling me jokes for an audition in clubs and saying, oh, great, you know, can I do this? Can I? Well, to me, I love that because I'm, you know, sort of people see you as a representative of that world and there couldn't have been a better world for me in that respect. That's why I went into writing about it um, as uh, for my PhD. Um, on the psychological side, I've always wanted to do something like that because I saw the devastation of war in my parents' lives. Mm. They were torn away from their families, their homes. My father suffered from PTSD. They both had incredible depression, but not overt depression, but depression from life. My father ended up working in a factory. My mother ended up making Christmas crackers. So, you know, turning on television and seeing the two Ronnies was really funny. Um, and that lightness of being helped us and ev everyone around, really, to get through those very difficult, dark days. You know, my father was working incredibly hard. He was the only one that was a survivor out of three brothers. He was working for us and sending money home to his, you know, sort of family out there. So it was a really, really tough upbringing. But humour just alleviates that and humour is free if you can access it. Um, so when I wrote my PhD, it was how do you become humorous? Not totally how do you become humorous. I had to do it on the background of Freud and Jung. Um, so you have to make it academically sound. And I wanted to show that humor, A, through self-deprecation, it actually helps you sort of release the constraints of your life that have been put on you. And also how you can redevelop your life. You Because life is not just 
living and growing up in an environment that you're given, which it is initially, but then you grow up and you've got to, if you have a dream, you've got to make it happen. How? Do, but also your dream has to encompass or encapsulate certain ethos that you've learned when you were growing up. And that's what I've tried to do. And when I, I do actually have clients and I try to look in the past, in the present, how that's impacting in the present, and what are you going to do in the future? Who are you for your future? What's the bits of creativity um, of you that you can bring to the fore that you don't actually know you have? Mm. And that's my job, I think, as a psychotherapist, to help people develop. And that's what, to some extent, I've looked back on my life. And that's, to some extent, what I've done, help people develop and had to develop myself because you have to build a new world for yourself psycho-evolutionary nature that we have is to move forward. And people forget that. People don't want to live in the past. People do want to be, have intellect. People do want to know. People don't want to be dumbed down. And I knew that through Jonglers when I was developing it. You know, if people would say to me, oh, no, you can't put that on. He's far too intelligent. They won't get it here or they won't get it there. And I thought, no, it's the way you do it. It's the way you present something. You don't demean anybody's intelligence. You put it in the right place when everybody has accepted that you're okay with them and they're okay in their own skin. And now, what about this? What do you think of this idea or that type of comedian? Hmm. So a lot of thought and planning went into how, you know, I developed jonglers. Comedy according to Freud or Jung. That's an interesting Jung. concept, isn't it? Well, funny enough, I did use the basis for Freud and I did write a, um, a theory of comedy a Jungian theory of comedy. I wasn't allowed to say the yeah. Jungian theory of comedy because Freud obviously wrote his. Yeah. So it was an addition to what Freud wrote because Freud wrote about the joke per se. I was writing about the joke as being a tool for awakening, if you like, as in Jungian terms, the trickster, and also the role of comedy enabling you to just transform yourself and become a different person. And, you know, highlighting work of people like Chris Rock, who actually affects the whole world, Dave Chappelle. I just want people back in England to start doing it. I'm re really a bit disappointed in the comedians today. Mm. What other um, challenges to a, does a lady like you face in the world of business today? I mean, you've alluded to a few of them already, mentioned them, but are there any other challenges? Are there things that you'd like to see change in the world yeah. in which we live? I don't know if I can, if they can change that quickly because I'd like to see more women at the top. And it's not just in the corporate world because in the corporate world, you're sho you shoehorn into a position. But to have the entrepreneurial experience is a different experience. You know, you're the explorer. You don't know what your terrain's going to be. You've got to get out there. You're like the alchemist and with all sorts of chemicals that you might create a bomb and you might blow yourself up and end up you know, bereft of everything. And there aren't that many women in the world, um, in my world, that I can reach out to that are have truly gone and built up their own business. I mean, L Linda Bennett was wonderful to talk to when she'd built up LK Bennett and women like that, because it's a totally different game. And I remember having a discussion with her, and I believe this still happens, in a boardroom. If you're not outspoken, how do you... How are you heard as the only woman in the room? And also, how do people trust that what you're saying is still relevant? And she was saying that the number of times she put a, uh, somebody would put something forward in the boardroom and uh, she'd say, no, I've tried that, it doesn't work. And they go, 
we know best, you mm. know, and they'd go off and try it and it didn't work. And it's also um, how do women make themselves heard and appreciated to have value in the boardroom? Because they're, people talk about testosterone. It's a bit more than testosterone, of course. It's how you perceive the boardroom. I think there's a lot of people that go into the boardroom that think, right, I'm here for me. You know, I'm the CEO. I'm going to be a CEO somewhere else tomorrow. Um, I've just got to show how brilliant I am here and somebody else will grab me over there. And so they're really not there for the company. And I experienced that. What are you here for, really, in the boardroom? Very difficult once you have business partners to manage that. You've got to sort of have the reins on a lot of horses, if you like, that are in the starting blocks every time you're in the boardroom. But it's also the work you do behind the boardroom. And I think that a lot of people really need to stop and think, what am I here for, actually? Why am I doing this job? Why am I actually, um, what am I going to gain from this? Am I working for the business? Am I not working for the business? And I think I would like to see more psychotherapists talking with people on the board. What is your role? And people who are choosing, the CEOs or the chair, who's choosing that non-exec, are, they, are you choosing them for the right reason? Mm. You know, is your board really effective? Or do you have them there because everybody else does? All the time there are models. People are afraid to break models. But the entrepreneur is the anomaly. Mm. You have to create the model. And the thinking of somebody who can bring in and recognise an anomaly in a business is also what a good psychotherapist should do in business. But it's no good being a psychotherapist without experience in business. The business world is a different game altogether. Fascinating. Um, if you don't mind me taking you back to 2000, um, it's not been success, success, has it, along the way? Uh, way back when, 17, 18 years ago, you had to close eight of the clubs, I believe. Mm-hmm. In 2009, so, yeah. So things were difficult yeah. for a while. Um, how do you overcome challenges? Because we all have them, don't we? Some of us pr- prefer to bury our head in the sand. How did you get back to where you are today? in light of those challenges that you had? All challenges, um, well, it depends how quickly they come. If you can see them, you can prepare. Um, The trouble is when the world around you changes, which impacts on your world, it means that you've got to be so aware of the environment. Who else is in your game? Who else is part of your team, if you like? And what happened to us was did affected us, not because of us, not because comedy wasn't secure, it was because of the business of uh, big pub chains and they were going down one by one and that's what happened. And suddenly, also, I think the BBC was showing a lot more comedy, they were losing their ground and they thought comedians, fantastic, cheap and very, very funny and very successful. And that's what the BBC did, which is quite right. Anybody in their business would have done it. It's now how do you sustain that? And when we had to close clubs, my biggest fear was we'd lose the brand um and um i opened a club and this was against my business partners because i said look we can't lose the brand here because this has taken too long to get here so i opened one club and just said here we are and just crazily advertised everything so that's what i do i tend to it's very instinctive actually um and i was quite surprised that my business partners were less fiery than I was Mm. Uh, and maybe that's the difference between somebody who creates something as opposed to somebody who's a business process structural 
um, partner, you know, a director. They might think strategically or they may think of the process, well, this runs very well, or the accountant. But as a business, you know, sort of the person that's going headlong, you have to move forward. You can't let the ship stop because you're in no man's land. But sadly, you know, sort of jongleurs did take a turn for the worst. And I left in 2014 for a good reason, because it was going in the wrong direction. I'm now developing something new and um, in line with everything that I'm doing. But I am setting up comedy with um, I really want to do more with PTSD and so on. But uh, there's reluctance actually in that world. I think a lot of people are afraid of comedy and uh, I think it's great. But it is, you know, sort of quite earth shattering when you do it. Mm. I did 10 minutes and it really does change you when you do your own stand up. Mm. Must have been a very proud moment when you received your MBE. Oh, my goodness. Actually, that was a funny story. <laughs> I uh, received a letter and I had been out with friends. So, I, you know, I had a few drinks beforehand. And this letter was on my table as I came in and I thought, oh, that looks quite tax. I won't answer. <laughs> I won't open that yet. <laughs> Not tonight. Yeah. In a good mood. And um, I thought, oh, no, open it. And as I opened it, I read it and I thought, no, this is wrong. And it's such beautifully written letter. And uh, I w- had a, a lawyer working with me and I took it into work and I said, I think this is saying I've got an MBE. Do you want to read it and <laughs> tell me if that's right? And it did. And it said, you know, sort of we would like to offer you an MBE. But in true John Lennon style, I think they've learned from him, it's like, do you want to receive it? If you don't, let us know because we're not going to ask you to sort of reject it. I said, you bet, my goodness, my my mother, uh, neither my parents are alive. And I thought my mother would have killed me if I didn't say yes to it. No, it was amazing. It's an amazing moment. Oh, good for you. I'm, yeah, on behalf of all of us, well, you know, very well done. And it's a reflection of all that you've achieved and continue to achieve. Are you allowed to tell us what you're up to next? Or is that oh, yeah, pushing no, you a little absolutely. bit too far? No, no. Um, I'm creating something called Speak Your Mind. Um, that's an online um mental health, sort of counselling psychotherapy. It's going to be both teaching people about psychotherapy. It's going to um, help people who want to phone in and talk to a psychotherapist or a counsellor. I worked in the Samaritans when I was very young, actually. I was about 20. So there were lots of people with mental health problems that I dealt with there. And it taught me a lot. My quest always was in my psychotherapeutic, my schizophrenic half, um, my psychotherapy We've all side. got one of those. We have. And it's it's quite good, actually, to let that sort of wild occasionally. But it's also how can I, through a phone call, help somebody turn their life around in that moment of real stress, real crises? And sadly, with psychotherapy, I mean, psychotherapy is amazing. But when you commit suicide, you don't do it at a five o'clock when you've got a session. You do it in the middle of the night. You do it early morning, you do it in the afternoon, you do it at random times. And sometimes it's premeditated. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, just the stress of life. And it's not whether you're successful. It's the internal stresses that build up. If Speak Your Mind can alleviate some of that, giving people an opportunity, A, to learn about the differences in all the fields of mental health. What is what? People don't understand. What is Freudian as opposed to Jungian? You know, can dream work help me understand my unconscious motivation? Dream work is beyond fantastic. And it's something I really want to help people with and do a lot of that in my own work. 
because it really raises stuff internally. But um, so that's one thing. And we'll be doing podcasts and developing that. And I've got I'm working with a university to give me the gravitas within the discipline. Mm. Uh, so the, the, the underpinning of the whole of the website. So they'll be very formal and it, it will be all qualified people answering the phones. Alongside that, I'm doing uh, a lot of social media and uh, TV programs. I own the Dingwalls brand, so I'm doing more with music. I want to, my real thing with comedy is to teach people how to enjoy comedy uh, and develop comedians and develop more women, female comedians, not as feminists that put down men or who complain about the world for women, but just who are funny. Mm. You know, I think we, if you are just funny, people will appreciate you. It's still difficult for women. They have a different tone, a different rhythm, actually, in their delivery of material, which people don't realise it has an impact. So there's a lot that I want to do in in the whole world of media, television. Uh, question then, um, just trying to encapsulate everything, every wonderful thing you've said so far. Uh, advice to a budding entrepreneur, somebody who was setting out on the road in life. Um, what what advice would you give to them when they were looking to take their first step, as you did? all those years ago? Well, you've got to do it. You cannot read a book and pretend and think this is it. You know, that's somebody else's model and it won't necessarily fit what you want to do. And it's aligning yourself, what you know, um, with what you want to achieve and where is it, in which field. Ask as many questions of as many people. Take advice as, as much as you can. Don't be afraid to ask. And people are very generous when you are starting out. It's later, you've got to pay. Um, <laughs> also, know yourself. Know what you're doing. What is your motivation here? And it's, again, when you're in the boardroom, when you're talking to others, what's your motivation? Is it for you you're doing this? Do you really want to set up a business? Do you want to make yourself the person that's centre of attention? Also, know your partners. Know what why you're going into partnership. What is that part? Or investors. Who are your investors? Where do they come from? What do they want from you? Young people go into creating these wonderful businesses. They go to a VC, get investment, and they're out within three months. Be aware of what you're doing, which they may not teach you. Um, know your lawyers. Why is this lawyer going to help you? Are they really the right lawyer for you in the right field? The same with an accountant. You know, is your accountant, what do they really want? Are they just going to do your accounts or do they want to become part of your business? Because it gives them kudos and opportunity to do other things. Be cynical a little bit. Ask the questions. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. And I know if you're an entrepreneur, similar to myself, I had so much learning to do. My parents were not in business at all. I didn't have anybody in business to turn to. You have. Today, there's a plethora of people and this what we're doing here today will encourage people. But I often talk at, you know, sort of Cambridge Business School. And uh, when I talk about the downfalls of starting a business, like lawyers or be careful, oh, don't ever give a PG, by the way. Do not give a personal guarantee on your house when you start a business because the banks will take it if you don't make enough money. And then you're out on the streets and Nobody cares when you're on the streets. You have to start again and there's no money coming in, believe me. So just be mindful of how enthusiastic you are and what you put behind that enthusiasm. And if you're going into something that already has a model, it's a little bit easier, but still be prepared to protect yourself. Mm. 
if you're the creative, protect yourself. You know, otherwise people will come in and run away with your idea and take it in a direction you don't want to go in and you've lost it. So early days negotiation, do not go into negotiations sort of so enthusiastically that you just get carried away because that can totally take you in a place that you don't want to be and suddenly you're dispensable and your dream is in somebody else's hands and it's gone in a different direction and then you're going somewhere else and then you're left you know, potentially doing the accounts and just the process while somebody else is basically running your business. But it sounds to me as if whilst in your life one door closed, another one certainly opened, and that's down to all those those great attributes you have as a person. So final question, Maria, if I may. We asked every guest this, and in some ways you've probably preempted this just with that very eloquent answer you've just given me. Um, let's imagine now with all all of that life and business experience you have, you're giving advice to a 15-year-old version of Maria Kempinska. And uh, in a few words, what, what advice would you give to that young lady as she was setting out on the road in life? Find the, go, Don't be afraid to go and find the best mentor you can. Possibly the person you think, I don't want to be you. You know, but you are so successful, what can you teach me? And when you're 15, they will answer you. They will talk to you because they are so generous. Majority of people in business, especially entrepreneurs, are very willing to speak to 15-year-olds. Not so much when you're the same age or, you know, sort of a little bit below them in age. But when you're 15, they will love teaching you things. Ask to shadow them. Be bold in that respect. Be brave. Always ask that question. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you come from. They will look after you and help you and just say, this is what I don't know. All I know is I have confidence. I will make it work. I will see it through. If they believe that you'll make it work, they will help you. What a fantastic piece of advice. Two more quick things, if we may. Firstly, where do we find out more about the work you're doing? Speak Your Mind. How, how do we find out a little it's bit more about www.speakyourmind.global. that? It's on www.speakyourmind.global. Global. Okay, good to know. Thank you for that. And uh, finally, I'm sorry, this is probably putting you on the spot, but we can't have a conversation about comedy, comedy. and not ask you your favourite favorite joke. joke. Do you know what? I, I find that so difficult. I can tell you my favourite comedian. When comedians tell jokes, they don't really tell jokes. They tell their life jokes. Okay, so when I was doing, I was asked to do 10-minute stand-up for um, charity. It was for soldiering on. And I thought, uh, here I am, it's going to be 11 o'clock, uh, at late show, stags and hens, above a disco. I've got to entertain people. I put on the best show because I thought, well, I'm going to be the worst performer. So I've got to make sure the rest of the show is good. And I knew the compare was going to take the mickey out of me. But how do I present myself? You know, here I am, I'm blonde, you know, sort of people don't think I own a comedy club. Everybody's always surprised. But how? what do I do with my opening line to bring people on side so they don't resent oh, yeah, you think you're so smart, you think you're so clever, that's the comedians, then the audience, okay, make me laugh. And um, this actually happened. So I thought, and because it happened, I wrote it down and used it as my opening line. So I went on stage. My compere said, she tells us this is for charity, but really she's buying a second home. Boom. And I went on stage carrying a glass of champagne. And I said... I was in the nightclub after the show because I belonged to private members clubs and there were lots of, you know, famous people around there, Pippa Middleton, Misha Paris. And I was going upstairs to the toilet and somebody shouts, look, there's Taylor Swift. There's Taylor Swift. (laughs) And I thought, where? 
And two men and two women coming downstairs. And I was looking around where... And then I realised they're talking about me. And so I said, who thinks I look like Taylor Swift? And people in the audience are very sweet, actually. When you introduce... Uh, when I was introduced, they were very, very sweet because they knew I was doing it for charity. So they had blank faces. And I pointed to somebody in the audience. I said, do you think I look like Taylor Swift? He went, no. I So I gave him the glass of champagne. I said, drink that champagne and then tell me, at what point of drinking champagne did that person, would you think I look like Taylor Swift? And it just broke the ice. And I thought, thank God for that. Genius. Really so good. So it, it was just a glorious moment to think that I could find something that was self-deprecating and actually happened, yeah. which was so funny in itself. And that's the essence, isn't it, of comedy yeah. generally. It's, it's what's going on in the world around us totally. all of the time. But it's also rec- being able to step away from yourself and thinking, what do people see about you? What is constantly being said? And because whenever I was in a meeting, nobody ever thought I was the one that originated jonglers. Everybody always thought it was my ex-husband who came in a number of years later or, you know, Regent Inns or a big, big conglomerate. So I thought, well, yeah, you play on that then. You know, use that in some way. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's an art. I haven't got there yet. Maybe one day. Oh, I think you have. Being far too <laughs> modest. Uh, Marie Kempins, again, time is against us, unfortunately, but it's been a real joy speaking to you. I've, as you've been speaking, I've had a big smile on my face all the way through. It's been, honestly, it's been fabulous. As fabulous as the first time we met. So on behalf of everyone listening, thank you so much for some amazing insights and pearls of wisdom that a lot of people are going to benefit from. So, so thank you for joining us. Oh, absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Maria Kempinska on the Sandro Forte podcast. Absolutely wonderful. There are many more fantastic guests joining me over the coming weeks, so please make sure you subscribe if you want to pick up some great tips on success. Remember, you can follow us on social media at Sandro's Podcast, that's Sandro's with an S, same on all channels, and we'd love to hear your stories, ideas, anecdotes, challenges, or what motivates you. So please keep those emails coming. Hello at sandrospodcast.com and the iTunes reviews so we know what you'd like more of in the future. Until next week. (laughs) 